Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The inflatable dinghy of truth fighting against the Tory wave machine of nonsense. I'm Alex Andreu. On today's show, the new statesman, Keir Starmer embarks on a global schmooze fest as he sets out his vision of an improved relationship with Europe and a plan to fix the asylum system. But will the EU play ball? Plus, is the pensions triple lock a minimum protection for people who have contributed to the system and deserve dignity in old age or an unsustainably expensive vote-buying exercise that no one dares go back on? But first, let's meet the panel. Roz Taylor is the host of Jam Tomorrow and the author of an upcoming book about trust. Hello, Hello. Roz. Hello. Hi. After the bit of HS2 that would link Manchester to Leeds was cancelled, and we were told it may probably not come into Euston straight away, but stop in some village outside London, now government is briefing that it might not go from Birmingham to Manchester. (laughs) Why are we so bad at large infrastructure projects? Well, I want to be contrary here and suggest that actually we're not too bad at big infrastructure projects. Really, though? (laughs) But, you know, we did the Channel Tunnel. We did. How long did that take? It took. This is the thing. It takes us a long time. We did Crossrail. We did HS1. We just about managed to open that in time for the Olympics. You know, we we take a long time, but we haven't absolutely screwed up a project in a major way yet. And this is why HS2, I think, is so difficult, because... It's it, to cancel it now after so much wrangling and so many sunk costs. And of course, I know all about the sunk cost fallacy that says yeah. that, you know, it's not necessarily a good idea just to go ahead with a project because a ton of money has already been spent on it. But to go to cancel it now would be a huge embarrassment, even internationally. It would make us look like idiots. It would make us broken Britain look even more broken. You know, not only are our schools falling down and we have 7.7 million on the NHS waiting list and all the other problems we have, but we can't even build a, a, a railway that we've been saying we're going to build for the past 20 years. It looks really bad. I mean, I was looking at comparable countries and the the sort of the distance of high-speed track Mm. that they have and how much it costs them per Mm. mile. And we are just nowhere near. HS1, by the way, I found out the other day, I had no idea what HS1 was. (laughs) It's the bit from London to the Eurotunnel. Yes, well, it's a high-speed track. That means you can go to Margate really fast when you never (laughs) used to, which is is obviously great. And uh, if you live in the southeast, it's, it's it's made a big difference. 
But the problem, as you say, is it's so expensive because HS2 goes through some really, really expensive land in uh, the Chilterns especially, mm, mm. which costs a bomb and it costs a bomb to do compulsory purchase orders and all the things you have to do. And then you have people fighting and fighting against against the route. And that's why it's been so expensive. I would suggest that the main links that we need and will need in the future for both road and rail they're not sort of that mysterious. So the the government really should be on a constant program of acquiring the land that we know we will need for those sort of arteries anyway. Hannah Fern is a columnist at the Eye and other such hallowed publications. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Some truly disturbing allegations surfaced at the end of last week about Russell Brand's behaviour The reaction, I think, is as interesting as the story. We have not seen the mass distancing that we usually see, right? In fact, the tribe of Brand's fellow travellers has stayed pretty much intact and in support of him. And it includes all the usual suspects, Mm. you know, the Andrew Tates and the Jordan Petersons and the Elon Musks and the GB News presenters. What does that say about the current landscape, do you think? Well, I found the sight of women cheering him at his gig on the night that the documentary went out um, and the Sunday Times published was the most shocking thing about it all. Women standing up with banners saying, we support you, ignoring the testimony of other women, I found very hard to swallow. But I think the bigger point, you're right, is that there's... uh, Is this the point at which those who've really stoked the culture wars pause and think, oh, what have we done here? Because it is this coming together of distrust of the media, distrust in the testimony of women, linking it to the Andrew Tate and the weird manosphere with the blue pill, Mm. red pill thing, like what's the truth? You're not understanding the truth about humanity and how people behave. And it's all come together in in kind of one story. I think this is the first time I've seen uh, one story that really brings all of those elements of the chaos that is online life at the moment in, in one place and it has real world implications these are young women's lives those four women who are brave enough to come out and and share their testimony Mm. this real people's trauma that is being raked over so it's not just online batshittery either as as you said this is mainstream journalists often who are stoking this there were that's definitely two i won't name names because it's it's not just two but there were i saw two very prominent female journalists basically tweeting their support for Brand and then admitting they hadn't actually read the full extent of the allegations and the four-year investigation by the Sunday Times Well, one said she hadn't even read the article. Yeah, absolutely. They hadn't read it. But they were just nevertheless coming They were in his corner and in his corner they would remain. So where does this leave us? You know, you can do four years of extensive work into a, a deeply troubling difficult story with all the legal requirements behind that and then other journalists who work in the mainstream media will commentate on it without even reading it and undermine it. So, And the Daily Mail will claim it as an exclusive, which was another (laughs) truly bizarre thing, that they took his response to the story he knew was coming out and and splashed it across two pages before the Times, claiming this is our exclusive. Brand allowed that to happen, of course, by trying to get ahead of the story, which is a classic PR tactic. But I guess my question about it all, if to step back from those women's testimony to a bigger picture is, where does it leave us that we are now in this situation where 
you you almost can't address any personal issue on individuals' claims without it becoming part of this culture war, this toxic mm. debate between them and us. Well, one of the things that strikes me is the similarities with Trump. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, also a sexual predator. Yeah. Uh, also very well-sourced accusations made against him, which have not touched him at all. And that is because he has built up this personality cult in the same way that Russell Brand has. Because Russell Brand occupies a space in public life which we can't really define very well now. Mm. He's not a politician. He was a comedian, a general entertainer, a presenter. Now he's not really that anymore. Now he has... Uh, enormous social media influence and he has a following and he has this kind of libertarian woo uh, vaccine skeptic you know uh, basically uh, QAnon adjacent persona yeah, the crankosphere yeah but what do you call someone like that you haven't even got a name for what he is <laughs> I've now. got a name for what well, he is <laughs> but, but Andrew doesn't like it when we say that word um, do you think it, this was by coincidence because I have heard some people suggest that people join the crankosphere and become advocates for it in anticipation of stories like that coming out because they know it future-proofs their income. I saw this mooted as well. And it's interesting that there is a correlation in the timing between him developing this sudden um, urgency and building his own personal community online and you know, the other the other things going on yeah, where yeah. he knows Me Too is happening. So there's that question mark. And those two investigations have been going on for years. Absolutely. So he, he would he have, will have known, known something about that. <laughs> but I, I don't know if it's that straightforward because mm. the kind of environment that we're in has fostered that kind of reaction in people like him anyway. Th mm. These narcissistic tendencies that he has, um, this obsession with power, influence, being having all of that available to him online and probably w witnessing how other influencers have, have gathered those uh, uh, communities and that kind of uh, power online has just attracted him to it. And also he's part of that. I've, I've heard him talk before about... Um, his, you know, his power in drug recovery. That's all about community too. So it very much taps into the sort of behaviour he was already invested in. Now, before we get into the topics proper, I'm going to break tradition because we simply have to devote a few minutes to Liz Truss <laughs> making a speech to the Institute of Government and the Q&A that followed that uh, as a famous lettuce once said, <laughs> je vinaigrette rien. Um, <laughs> Hannah, what are the main <laughs> takeaways of, of this glorious rebranding? Well, it's not really a rebranding, <laughs> is it? So they're standing up and saying the same thing over again, hoping you'll get a different result. <laughs> Isn't mm. that the definition of madness? Yeah. Is perversion of. The thing I found most fascinating about the whole spectacle was that she'd had a year to prepare for this. The whole point was that it's the anniversary of her creating her government and so on. And she managed, with a year's preparation, to stuff it so remarkably. <laughs> she stumbled over a lot of the important lines know, and I the know. detail and the data. And the only sort of new line in there, as it were, in terms of her saying, you d I, this is what I could have done, but you didn't give me the time, was there was this um, commitment to a restraint on government spending, which she said would have um, accompanied 
the mini budget, but we didn't get to hear that that part of the package. Um, but everything else was really a complete reiteration uh, of everything we'd already heard. Because the dinner her. parties got her, apparently. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, there aren't any dinner parties, Liz, <laughs> because we're all too skint to hold them. <laughs> so I'd like to tell you, I promise you, this is not the topic of conversation because I, we're not getting. I know you say it's a year since that happened. But that to me is very quickly to try and make a sort of rehabilitative comeback into public life. What is the pressing need? I mean, she could have left it like three or four years and it might have gone down a little bit better. Is it possible that she thinks she can have another crack at the leadership? I um, think she... Is, she, is it to undermine Sunak further? I don't think it's actually about having another crack at leadership, oh, not least because if she wanted that, she's demonstrated that she's absolutely not the person, that she has absolutely no leadership qualities whatsoever, no charisma, no style, no no uh, ability to convince and, and, and enchant, all of those things weirdly that we were just talking about a moment ago. Are we sure that it was unsuccessful in the way that she wants? We are obviously all raising an eyebrow at it. But there's a hard core of the Conservative Party and still in the Parliamentary Party, even though she's stuck a stick into the parliamentary party as well who would give her another go and she knows that and there were elements in there that I thought were quite clever in her speech talking about people who are earning 50,000 but are claiming universal credit that is actually possible if you're a single parent to about six children and living in an extremely expensive private rented home it's a really rare occurrence, but she's managed to find some data that really draws on those kind of heartstrings. And also talking about the fates of millionaires, she shows that I think she knows that there are a few people who haven't given up on her um, her version of history. So I don't think it's actually about another immediate leadership attempt. It's about saying, I still think I was right. And for those of you who also think I was right, I'm here, you're here, let's not wither away. In the audience, of course, was Nigel Farage, apparently, Patrick <laughs> Minford, Julian Jessup, um, etc., etc., and no one once saw their lips move. Ros, what struck you most? Uh, what struck me most was that she seemed to exist in a world where low growth is the only problem affecting, afflicting Britain <laughs> right now, where, you know, yeah, our growth is rubbish at the moment, our GDP is, is rubbish, but this is not the only problem that Britain has. There were no answers at all to the fact that public services are so run down. Somebody asked her about uh, the NHS um, and the long waiting lists and what she would do about that, and she said, oh, the problem is all management. I don't think the NHS needs more money it's it's all it's all poor management which is you know your standard reply that comes from right wingers about the NHS and but but the notion that long waiting lists don't affect people's ability to work and don't affect the rest of the economy and that the you know the running down of public services in this country doesn't make it harder for britain to grow was something that entirely it just exists outside her her worldview mm -hmm. and she was challenged uh, a few times directly to apologize to people whose mortgages mm -hmm. were affected mm -hmm. and i i found that be quite extraordinary she just refused yeah, she her said interest rates will go up anyway they were going up anyway yeah, yeah I, I just mean, happened to be around at the time section it, on housing it, they just went up in one week <laughs> all in one go so what's the problem it reminded me of i think something keen said that the problem with just looking at the long term is that in the long term we're all dead yeah. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> she had a go at the mainstream media over that. She basically said the mainstream media had, had put across the narrative that yeah, she, yeah. Had, she, she had she done that. She sort of that. went, Jack Hughes, yes. it's you that reported it wrong. That whole sectional housing really flipped my lid, to I be know. honest, because she basically blamed failures of the left, which is remarkable because what we've seen is entirely failures of the right. The, the housing sector, de development sector, property developers are not building because it's uneconomic to do so right mm. now. <laughs> is this a nightmare for number 10, Ros, um, Trust reminding everyone of a period they would much rather the nation forgot? Or is it actually quite useful as it makes Sunak appear competent and sensible by comparison? I think he might think that. And to a certain extent, I can understand why. It certainly makes him seem extremely competent in comparison. It reminds everyone what a shit show the Trust uh, Premiership was. But I think to most people in Britain, it's all of a piece. It's all of a piece with the succession of prime ministers and the hellscape that was last autumn politically. And it all goes together and creates an impression of... Yeah, they're, they're all yeah, they're yeah. all part of the same problem. On the other hand, uh, as well as Hannah says, there are some people in the Conservative Party who very much want to hear her message and are very keen to hear about the possibility of tax cuts because we're not hearing anywhere else. No one, you know, fairly sensible is talking about tax cuts being a reasonable possibility at the moment. And keeping that flame alive perhaps might feed them just a little bit and keep them mm. on board. And it might potentially stop some kind of splinter group should, if the Tories do leave, the, uh, win the, sorry, if the Tories do lose the next election. So it perhaps might serve a purpose of trying to keep those guys in the tent pissing out rather than <laughs> outside the tent pissing in. First this week, politicians have been flocking to the largest gathering of centrist dads since the debut of Robert Peston and Ed Bowles' band, actually called Centrist Dad, and I didn't make any of that up. As well as Justin Trudeau, Tony Blair and Keir Starmer, Norway's Premier Jonas Gahr Finland's former PM Sanna Marin, former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney and former New Zealand leader Jacinda Ardern attended the Global Progress Action Summit. Some interesting lines have emerged, including much more daring language about fixing the current UK-EU deal and a more fleshed out plan about asylum seekers, the backlog of decisions and small boat crossings. Ros, the FT on Monday splashed with Labour government would seek to rewrite the Brexit deal. What does that mean exactly? Is that an accurate uh, assessment of what was said? It means that Keir Starmer feels able to uh, creep a little closer to the European Union without being savaged by uh, the right-wing uh, press in this country. Basically, the um, uh, Brexit deal, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, is due for review in 2025. Now, review, as far as the EU is concerned, is a fairly limited word. Mm. It just means, how is it functioning? If it's not functioning very well, can we make it function a bit better? It doesn't, I think, for the EU mean opening it up and rewriting it. However, uh, I think Keir Starmer sees certain opportunities to improve the state of relations between Britain and the EU to remove some of the trade frictions. And let's bear in mind that quite a few of the trade frictions that we will see haven't even happened yet because yeah. they keep being pushed into the future mm -hmm. because they're going to be so difficult when they happen. You know, perhaps we could see some some uh, action on mobility and you know the difficulty of people uh, of uh, you know even going on a business trip to yeah, some yeah. part 
parts of the EU now and, and vice versa. And then the phytosanitary regulations, which I won't get into, but which you know, we occasionally chat about on this podcast. Uh, what it doesn't mean, of course, as far as Starmer is concerned, is uh, the single market, is the customs union, is, God forbid, rejoining the EU. It means tinkering around the edges. Like you say, EU sources have been quite hostile to the idea that this might become a full-on renegotiation and emphasise that what is written into the TCA mm. is an implementation review. You sort of look at how it's working and tweak bits that don't work so well. I mean, my, my argument would be that that's quite extensive at the moment. But why does Labour think it can improve terms? Does it genuinely think it can improve terms or is it just puff? Uh, I think it does. And I think it uh, wants to create a less, it wants to nurture a less hostile environment, mm, you could mm, say, mm. Uh, towards the EU. Now, clearly, this was more of an issue under uh, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss when clearly we, you know, were slacking off the EU at, at every opportunity. But he thinks that if he can reset relations further, and of course, we've already made some progress with, with Horizon and Frontex and build trust with the EU, that there will be more of an openness to doing deals around the edges on these things, you know, that I mentioned earlier, border checks and, and even things like carbon pricing, for example, at the moment, mm. it's very complex, but we are basically undermining the EU's efforts to set a carbon price by undercutting them yeah. in, in, yeah. in Britain, which is unhelpful to say the least, but gets very little publicity. Energy, cooperation on things like that, defence, so it's not an EU competence really, is something else that we can we can work with. Uh, you know, the, the VAT rules, which are going to make life very difficult for quite a few people that sort of thing. Um, but I think what he wants is a, he, he would like to see is a cultural change in our attitudes to the EU to it's take signaling. the toxicity yeah, yeah. out of the, out of that, yeah, out yeah. of that relationship and to, for the EU to feel that we uh, are people that they can talk to and whom they can trust. And that would be a bit of a step change. And, you know, this is a beginning. And of course, now he's not talking about rejoining the single market. It is still politically deemed too toxic to mm. do so. Mm. I doubt that that can happen in the next decade. But he would, probably wouldn't be prime minister in a decade. And a lot of things can change. It's a question of putting the relationship on a better on a better footing, footing exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's interesting that as you were listing all that stuff, what what uh, struck me was that quite a lot of it can be done unilaterally. Like mm. you could just announce your intention to stay in alignment with yeah. employment regulations. It yes. doesn't have to be an agreement. Right? Dynamic alignment. It doesn't alignment. have to be. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You could uh, put the whole of the UK in the same um, fighter and fighter sanitary um, zone as Northern Ireland, yeah. which would solve loads of those problems. You can do that unilaterally. You don't have to agree it with anyone. Um, Hannah, Naomi's never far from our hearts. Best for Britain have produced a report on the number of EU artists that have performed at UK festivals since Brexit. And we also saw the Independent Society of Musicians publish a report last week on the catastrophic effect of Brexit the other way around, UK artists working in Europe. Is this the sort of thing that can be improved on the margin? Yeah, just as Ross was saying, really, I think there's that kind of sector by sector agreements or uh, alignments that you can manage that just make life easier for everyone and probably don't cause the same amount of uproar that you would otherwise see. I mean, we've recently seen the very, very welcome um, rejoining of the Horizon 
yeah. uh, membership, which is the European Scientific Research Group that we kind of fell out of as part of the Brexit process. And now we've managed to very quietly find a way to rejoin because everybody sensible <laughs> has realized it's a disaster to not be part of I that. I mean, including Sunak, to his credit. Uh, yep. He's done quite a lot of that stuff. He's pretty much I mean, gone uh, through the list of... Labour's uh, Labour's sort of asks from last year and done 70% of them in terms of what needs improving. There, I mean, Labour is being very pragmatic, exactly as you said, Ros, that you can't scrap Brexit now. It's at least 10 years, I suspect probably longer away, but you can make it better. Mm. And these kind of compromises can be found almost everywhere, I think. If you, you're under a Labour government, you haven't got the difficulty that Sunak has of having to manage his own party. Most people within Labour, the vast majority within Labour, you've only got a few rogue backbenchers. We'll be pushing would, the other way, yeah, actually. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it seems a great example. I think Horizon was so welcomed, not only because it felt like the right thing to do and Sunak had accepted it, but also because it felt like that a moment of compromise had been finally mm. been mm. reached. And it is a, a starting point for every other compromise that yeah. will need to be made to... Galileo, Erasmus, <laughs> Frontex. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole series of them. Uh, it, it seems to me that what is more important here is the language. Starmer talking directly about Brexit, which he absolutely refused to do a year ago, talking about it in terms of improving the future of his daughter and his son. Mm. Um is this a blip, do you think, or is it actually a course correction? I'm not sure if it's either. It's definitely not a blip. It's, it's clever planned. language. It's clever language that's sort of almost both sides of the argument. It mm. speaks very directly both to young people because he talks about his son and daughter. Um, but also he's addressing, I think, the regrets and frustrations of people who did vote for Brexit but didn't vote for this because they didn't know what they were voting for and they didn't expect the lunatics to take over the asylum and absolutely destroy mm. it. So that language is very important on that. He seems to have thought very sensitively about how you make amendments to a hard Brexit palatable and has hit upon something. Yeah. And I think it works quite well. And, you know, arguably you could say that this is the sort of the first step to rejoin. If you want to believe that, go ahead, because that's, that, it feels good to hope that. No, you but, know, re rejoin depends on the other side as well, as I always exactly. have to point out. Again, I think it's quite clever because it allows some people to sort of gain that hope in their heart mm. while also not really meaning that. Yeah. So it's a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure response. Um, politicians love a list. Starmer identified four major global problems, climate change, people smuggling, terrorism, and weakening democracy. Has he got his priorities right, do you think? It's not a bad list. I mean, you can't disagree with climate change. People smuggling, I suspect he actually means migration in general and the challenges of all kinds of irregular migration, whether it's driven by climate change or war or all the other things that are driving it. Terrorism, yep, yeah, okay, it's always going to be a threat. Um, I would say disease was a bigger threat, as we saw during the pandemic, right. and the effect that that can have on uh, international relations is huge and it will be if we do get a pandemic that is more deadly uh, than uh, COVID-19 was I think the that that is something that the international community barely 
dares to think about, mm. but he doesn't mention. Weakening democracy, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, populism he could have said, but he probably wouldn't because weakening democracy yeah. sounds a, a little more... Um, diplomatic. Uh, diplomatic, yeah. There's also nuclear proliferation. I think he, that that is worth a, worth a nod. It's been going on for a long time, but it's still as acute as ever. I mean, can I just make the general point that just this kind of global summit to which journalists go and the lines that are coming out, broadly speaking, instead of being Trump declares war on Andorra <laughs> or, you know, Boris Johnson seen naked in fountain, <laughs> um, you know, the, the lines coming out are all very professional. And they're all, we're going to all work together and be sensible <laughs> yeah. and do stuff. You know? it, it is, it's a massive relief, right? One of Starmer's lines on immigration at this conference was that border security, and I quote, is a progressive cause. Soft borders benefit no one except smuggling gangs and those who want to whip up distrust and hatred. Is this window dressing for a harsher approach or does he have a point? This is very politic. I think borders have become and are going to become much more important in Europe. I'm not sure that uh, Schengen as it exists today will continue to exist in the future. I'm not sure that freedom of movement as it exists in the EU today will continue because there are increasing numbers of pressures making people want to close borders more often, whether that is COVID, whether that is natural disasters with the flows of people as a result, uh, whether it is wars on the border with, with Ukraine and so on. And that is going to put, that is going to reaffirm people's the, the importance people attach to mm, borders. Mm. And it is going to be very hard for the EU to 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 stand up against that. If you were being a little bit cynical, you could see you could say that that represented something of an opportunity for Starmer. For example, is it possible to be in the single market without freedom of movement? Well, if the EU no longer has freedom of movement, then yes, it is. But that is projecting really into the future, and I know a lot of people may mm. disagree with me. Mm. But it is my feeling that migra that the borders are going to be a, a to tighten immensely, partly because it's easier to tighten them than it has been in the past, and the countries are more serious about their ability to keep people out, and it is more obvious to people when borders are being breached in a way that you know used to be fairly. Less Satellite visible. imaging, unmanned vehicles. Nigel Farage on, on a beach in Kent. <laughs> yes. the, I mean, that yes. is the main deterrent. <laughs> it has to be, it would be to me yeah. um, if I knew that I was heading for a beach where Nigel Farage was standing, I would change course. Um, Hannah, much of the reporting has been along the lines he will let 100,000 more migrants in. And media seems to acknowledge that this number is a complete fiction. I, I saw that live, I think on Sky News, it was on Sunday morning. Someone said, this number has been plucked out of the air. <laughs> and has no relation to reality, yeah. but let's talk about it anyway. So they then still interrogate labor and its basis. Is such open fabrication of data, do you think, a sign of panic at conservative headquarters, or is it a cool, considered, calculated strategy to use this kind of disinformation in the coming election? Uh, it's back to Ian Dunst's round numbers, isn't it? Mm. Like there's uh, all of those numbers fabricated. Well, anything with a zero on the end is fabricated. 
and it provides a talking point. So I don't think it's necessarily panic. I think it's about trying to control a narrative. They know that a figure with a round number helps to control a, nag- a narrative. It's something people can latch on to. But actually... Yeah, but this one is completely made up. Yeah, but they all are. And, I, and to be fair, I think that Labour saying that it needs specifically 1,000 caseworkers to manage the migration backlog is also an entirely plucked out of thin air number. And it's done for the same reason. I mean, they'll claim there's some calculations on there, but 1,000? 1,000 specifically? So I think the number simply is a way of trying to attract attention and hold attention. Um, I don't think it's necessarily panic. It's just understanding how people receive news information. Yeah, I'm going to push back against that, I'm afraid, because I think if, if you do some work and and someone says so, so we've calculated that you need 982 new case workers to proceed at sure. that rate you rounding it to a thousand seems sensible but this figure that the, the conservatives are uh, talking about is not some rounded figure it's a completely invented figure they've looked at the uh, the allocation deal that EU member states have with each other at the moment Mm. and extrapolated that if the UK entered in those terms and immigration into the EU increased by the current trend, you would end up with 100,000. It is is absolutely about trying to control the narrative and nothing more. It's not, as you say, it's not about a it's Complex. not controlling them. It's making shit up. Yeah, <laughs> to try and get people to listen to them. But yeah, why I don't agree are we with beautifying it, it by getting no. the controlling I, I the just, narrative? I honestly, making shit up. I honestly don't believe that Labour are immune to this. And I think that we could go through almost everything that Starmer has said in the last Why are we two sizing this? I'm asking uh, you about this number, this 100,000 migrants that were splashed that... on the front of three newspapers last weekend and you're talking about Labour hiring more asylum No, I don't think I don't think I'm surprised you're so surprised is what I'm saying that I'm surprised you're so surprised that they are doing this Yeah It's horrible but it's not a surprise I guess I'm surprised because this one is entirely made up and I'm surprised because that usually is not acknowledged. But in this case, it has been acknowledged. Like, if you read even the Telegraph's report of this figure, it goes, <laughs> it's a little, bit shaky. It's quite dodgy, really, how they've Almost, arrived at yeah. that and still splash that head. And all, yeah, all of the government's uh, communications about migration over the last three yeah. years has just been utterly fabricated. Yeah. And um, because they are essentially, in my view, and I'm sure everyone around this table agrees, doing something utterly immoral in the way they handle migration. So they're simply plucking figures out of the air to try and to manage it. And when I say they're trying to wrest control, what I mean is they've done something that I think is actually, they've gone by their same playbook. Let's pick a scary figure out of the center. But it's a strange choice because if you're not listening properly to the radio on this one, it actually sounds a little bit like... That's They'll how many they've, they've let slip through already. Yes, yeah. they've almost, it's almost an own goal mm. because what people are hearing is 100,000 migrants coming into this country and we've currently still got a Tory government. And the curious... So I, do, I think it's a very poor strategy as mm. well yeah. as it being an attempt to use the same old playbook. The curious thing as well was that they chose to illustrate it with a backdrop of uh, migrants arriving on a Kent beach 
And so you have this figure with, you know, the situation <laughs> which the Conservatives have, you know, got themselves into and reinforcing the message that people are arriving yeah, illegally exactly. in the UK in their hundreds uh, every or sometimes thousands every week. Yeah. And to do that was very odd, a very strange yeah. decision. Ros, um, just to round this off, Starmer is meeting Macron. Um, today, Tuesday, when you're listening to this, is there a sense that the world is beginning to treat Starmer a little bit as already the prime minister? Uh, but is there an electoral danger in that, considering the fact that, you know, one of the things that animated Brexit was a generalized fear of this global elite? Mm. No, I don't think it's too much of a risk to him. I mean, you've got to bear in mind the Montreal conference that he's just been to, uh, full of the centrist dads, as you put it, is actually a lot of the global leaders there were, were no longer in power. You know, mm. Tony Blair, uh, Sanna Marin in Finland. Uh, it, it, Jacinda Ardern. Yes, Jacinda Ardern. Uh, it wasn't, you know, actually, a, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, and it wasn't anything like Davos. It was you know, clearly no. a, um, a centre-left gathering as well. It was and a very little much... fantasy football, wasn't yes. it? It's like, here's what you could have won if you didn't vote like a fuckwit. Yeah. <laughs> and also, it's it makes, it's the contrast as well is pretty strong with Jeremy Corbyn, I think. It, it mm. makes Starmer look like like the kind of guy who could talk to uh, other powerful people on the world stage and look as though he fits in. And whatever your views on, on Corbyn, he never quite looked like he fitted in that kind of environment, whereas uh, Starmer does, and that is an electoral advantage. And apparently he just let slip as well casually that, you know, he talks, he talks to Obama a lot, a lot. <laughs> Which I thought was masterful. What worse people to <laughs> have on your speed dial? Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Who should be the target of approbation and who should be the subject of probation? Who deserves a fuss and who deserves less trust? <laughs> Hannah. Okay, so my heroes of the week, for very, very obvious reasons, are the comics Catherine Ryan and Sarah Pascoe, who are two women who have spoken as openly as libel law and every other legal uh, restriction upon us allowed them about the Me Too situation in their own industry and their allies for women everywhere and generally hilarious. And so good for them and thank you for being there. Hurrah. My villain of the week is everybody from the politicians down to the keyboard warriors moaning about the 20 mile an hour speed limit coming in in Wales. So they've made it sound like the entire country of Wales is going to have a 20 mile an hour speed that you can't possibly travel from like Prestatyn to somewhere without going at 20 miles an hour. Obviously that's nonsense. The policy is very, it's just that in towns and villages built up busy areas where, there is a where there's high protest or, or where there's already, already a 30 mile an hour speed just bring it down to 20 because we know that if you hit someone or a child particularly at 20 they're very unlikely to die and if you hit them at 30 they'll be seriously injured or potentially die very good policy 
already in place in a lot of British towns and cities, all almost all of London. Um, but Wales and Wales Twitter, and also obviously everybody involved with the low traffic neighbourhood uh, anger oh, is know. really tapping in. I don't know, Hannah. I have to say. They're Not running over children nuts. sounds a bit woke to me. <laughs> exactly. How so, about you, Ross? Well, my hero is someone uh, who I wouldn't normally perhaps nominate as a hero, uh, Dehenna Davidson, who is the uh, who was the Leveling Up Minister until today, oh, the thirty-year-old Tory MP. Stuff, yeah. yeah, because she stood down because her chronic migraine is making it impossible. She says for her to continue to work in the role, and I really feel for her because chronic migraine is the worst. I have suffered from it a lot. It is terrible. There's things to you that people who don't have migraine can't even imagine, and I just feel for her that you know in the prime. She's really getting underway, albeit for a government that I don't like at all. Uh, she has been uh, struck down in this way. So praise to her for being honest about it yeah. and being being frank. Uh, my villain is, uh, I'm afraid it's a bit predictable, it's Elon Musk, who's been just talking the most utter crap again. Um, his today or yesterday he said the Soros Foundation wants nothing less than the destruction of Western civilization. Oh, I mean, I declare an interest. Was this before or after he expressed his full-throated support for <laughs> Russell Brand? I'm not sure, but you know, I declare an interest in that. You know, I do freelance work for open society foundations, but but the destruction of Western civilization—the guy has just <laughs> turned into. He was a troll before, but now he is more of a troll than he ever was. It's like owning Twitter has turned him into the biggest troll you can imagine. He has totally taken on the absolute worst aspects of Twitter and now personifies them. Hmm. Right, okay, so my decision is um, the women who have spoken out, including um, currently active working comedians, uh, but also the victims who are coming forward, they're our heroes of the week, and Elon Musk is our villain of the week. Um, in a tip to other panelists, if they're listening, anytime you suggest Elon Musk, he will be the villain of the week. <laughs> Now, perhaps you're a younger person, unsure if you'll ever get to pension age before the planet evaporates. Perhaps you wonder whether there will be such a thing as pensions or just a sweet civil ceremony as you're taken away to a factory to be turned into cat treats. <laughs> so for the uninitiated, the triple lock is a coalition government concept that says pensions must increase by a figure of 2.5%, inflation or average wage growth, whichever is highest. It's designed to protect the dignity and living standards of older people. The figure should be 8.5% this year because that is current wage growth, including bonuses. But Work and Pension Secretary Mel Stride set a few hairs running when he failed to commit to that figure on the basis of the calculation. Not doing so could save the government billions of pounds. Hannah. Is this the first time since its inception that the rules of the triple lock have looked very shaky? It's the first time where the figures are so stark mm -hmm. um, that it feels deeply unfair. However, depending on your perspective or perhaps your age, <laughs> they've looked quite shaky for a long time. And the IFS actually first called for it to be scrapped back in 2015, because even back then it was very clear that once you add other elements of of life other than income into it, like housing costs, employment opportunities, the gig economy, things like that, that began to be a big issue in around 2015. It, it, it was based on very old-fashioned assumptions that no longer 
you know, were, mm, were, mm. were uh, relevant. Um, and we had this long period of low inflation, very low inflation and almost stagnant wage growth. But in that period, pensioners were getting comparatively wealthier at all the time. Now, when it was first introduced by the coalition government, um, and actually, let's go back, but the, the predecessors to it, there were some policies akin to it, but not quite as strong as the triple lock under Labour. There was a massive problem with pensioner poverty in this country. Yeah, and it because did... before that, there was a huge period of where yeah. they really were. Absolutely. The pensioners uh, were becoming poorer and poorer and That's poorer. right. And and Labour actually managed to really tackle that. And then when the coalition government came in, to be fair, when this was introduced, it was about protecting that what they'd gained, that now we had a, a pensioner population who were not living in poverty. They were, mm. you know, living like the rest of us, pretty much akin. And that was right. Um, and it was supposed to protect it. But we've now got this situation where it's completely um, irrelevant. Pretty much everyone under 45 knew, but even in 2015, that they were never going to get a triple locked pension. So it feels a little bit like when, you know, when these numbers were created, they looked okay, but then they started to create this resentment uh, mm. and, and, and played into this kind of intergenerational crisis, which is very unhelpful for the country and does need to be unpicked. So I think it's it's right that it's being looked at very seriously. But, but would Rishi Sunak seriously risk a sort of Theresa May dementia tax style policy disaster among their natural voters to try and claw back whom? So my hunch... All, you know, younger people who don't vote for them anyway. No. So my hunch on that, based on zero intelligence, just assumptions based on everything that we know about how the policy operates and the party, is no... I suspect we'll, he'll stick with it for the manifesto, but claim that this year is some kind of unique uh, quirk because of the, you know, the cost of living mm -hmm. crisis, the energy crisis and so on, and maybe waive it for one year, but still commit to it in the manifesto. Right. But I, I do think it started a conversation that means it won't be with us for much longer. So we'll pay you that provided it's not very high, yeah. is the message. Um, Roz... Most people no longer work for a single company or even in a single career. By the by, the time they're 40, they're likely to have paid into a number of pots with literally little idea how much is in each. I mean, even I don't exactly know. Um, d does the concept of pensions in general just need standardizing, tidying up somehow? Well, there was a move towards this when they brought in the um, pension scheme called NEST, which um, private companies can use, basically smaller ones, to offer a pension scheme to their employees. And they brought that in when they uh, brought in auto-enroll, mm. um, which uh, obviously means that you, you are encouraged to, uh, you are nudged to be in a pension scheme as opposed to actively having to join one. And... <sighs> It's it, the thing is that a lot of companies don't use Nest, and it's actually surprisingly difficult to consolidate your pensions. When you actually start looking into it, lots of them say, "Oh no, you can't take your money out, or you can't put any more money from anywhere else into ours either." And I think as well, many people prefer to spread them out, especially since the financial crisis. For, per, personally, I, I have a strong tendency to want to spread the, you know, the risk that is inherent in a pension, to be honest, especially since the financial crisis. I mm. get a bit paranoid about a Northern Rock-like situation. And I don't, I'm not confident in the ability of the government to <laughs> bail me out should my, an extremely large pension go bust, uh, scheme go bust. So what it comes down to is the relationship between the state pension and private pensions. And in other countries, that can be very different. France, of course, has a, you know, a bigger, it's more state regulated, there's more state and less, less private element. 
And then that leads to other interesting questions, uh, which you know might be opened up in the same way that the triple lock is opened up. For example, should people who have a very generous company pension, and some people do, be entitled to a state pension at all? Or should it be means tested effectively? Yeah. Should you not get one if you already have loads of Wonga? And I think that would be fair enough. After all, they did that with child benefit. I mean, the problem you hit with that is that means testing is really quite administratively yeah. cumbersome yeah. and actually costs a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, there is that. Um, and also when you take the idea of Some would suggest that taxing, that actually applying a normal sort of tax rate to pension contributions mm. so that if you tip over a particular thing, you still pay tax, mm. might be an easier yeah. um, way of doing it. Yeah. Um, I was just looking up some figures because there are now Roughly one in five people in the UK don't have a mm. pension, you yeah. know, don't make a pension contribution at all no. because there's so many people in the gig economy mm. yeah. and, you know, just doing bits and bobs working for themselves that just don't contribute anything. And yeah. what's that going to come to? Um, well, that those people obviously be entirely dependent on the estate pension mm. when uh, when it comes down to it, and that is, you know, that is one of the failures of pension policy that we haven't managed to set up a better scheme for people who are self-employed um, to uh, and scheme for, for these and encourage them to pay into. Mm. Mm. Hannah, debates like this, I think, mask the vast inequalities between yeah, pensions. Absolutely, the majority of the increase in pensioning income in the last 20 years down to generous defined benefit schemes, which are largely closed to new yep. entrants. They, they really don't exist anymore. The state pension accounts for 40% of the income of the average pensioner, but 73% of the incomes of the poorest pensioners. Do we need to restart a debate on means testing, like Ros was suggesting, look at taxation, do, do something basically to try and level that field? Yes, I think it'll be a range of things. There probably needs to be some kind of means testing, but it has to be done carefully. I personally think the concept of a universal state pension for what you've contributed through your working life, you put in years of national insurance contributions, there's a, a solid, clear benefit at the end in your retirement years is actually quite an important principle. But as you've said, it does mask these huge differences between those who have more and those who don't. A really important part of our retirement situation at the moment is, no one will be surprised to hear me talking about this, is the housing situation. So you have a lot of pensioners who are entirely uh, own their own home. You really right? are a hammer. I know, I'm obsessed. <laughs> and everything's a nail. It, oh, but this is very important because we now have a generation of people my age and sort of 15 years younger who are likely to never own a huge number of people. And the state is not used to paying vast sums of housing benefit well into retirement, mm. and it will have to. So there's, that's a huge part of pension and retirement planning now for the state is that you've got to assume that you're going to be subsidizing people in private rent for a huge amount of time which has not happened before. So that's got to be part of the discussion as well. They've got to get their skates on in on the social housing front, yeah. I think, yeah. because there is then this whole generation coming through that you just can't be on a pension and be renting. I mean, it's well, it's completely I, impossible, I, right? Very likely that it won't be fast enough that this that, that will happen and there will be, I'm sure, I hope, that we'll get a, a social housing sorted out, but there will be a chunk of people 
who will still be in private rent. Um, Rose, several people have pointed out, and the Times' Tom Carver tweeted some data on this, that millennials agitating against the triple lock is not a smart thing because they're undermining their own pension. Is that a fair criticism? Do we need to think a little bit longer term? Well, it's certainly something to bear in mind. But if you really believe this system is forever or even for the next 30 years, sure. But I think what we have seen with public policy is that it can change very rapidly and situations can change very rapidly. Mm. And given that the pension age has already risen to 68 with extraordinarily little public debate in this country about it, that seems to me a strange hill to die on. Uh, it, and it seems to me even sometimes it's done a little bit in bad faith where, you know, oh, you know, got to think about your future. Yeah, but as, as Hannah's pointed out, a, a majority of pensioners now do own their own property, something which is increasingly denied to people under 40 and under 45. And so to say, well, you've just got to carry on waiting and be patient seems frankly unrealistic. Mm. Um, Labour has been unable to commit to it either on the basis that if the government have scrapped it by the time they get to power, they would need to completely rejig pub public finances to accommodate it. I mean, I think that's quite a reasonable thing to say, but it is a position that gets them in trouble time after time. On HS2, we discussed mm. it again, because they, they just look mean and they look dishonest and mealy-mouthed and not really committing to anything. Is there a more elegant way of getting out of those questions of saying, I can't tell you until we know yeah, I think there is. I mean, uh, the the way is simply just not to be pinned down. And you can say that you are committed, because you're the Labour Party, to ensuring pensioners get a fair deal and don't suffer in their old age. And that is hugely important. But the way to do that is going to change as economic circumstances change. And we all know that, that uh, as, as they change, that you have to adapt. Mm. And I think it's about building trust in the Labour Party's ability to keep its promises and do the decent thing in that way and not constantly trying to, you know, grind them down and say, oh, you promised this, but you've taken it away. It's about, and, and that's part of what building trust in a political party and in a political part, a leader is about. Yeah. You have to allow that kind, you have to grant them that kind of flex and say, yeah, we trust you to do the right thing in this circumstance and not just constantly <laughs> barrel down on the details. As you were saying, that I could see the next day's Daily Mail <laughs> I cover know. going. I thought the same. Pensioners <laughs> to sit in their own poop forever. <laughs> well, says we, know, we know the mail operates in bad faith. Mm. If you have a party that is can inspire sufficient trust and uh, and faith in 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 itself to to do these things then i think you can do that and people will say yeah i do i do trust them to do the right thing. It's the labor party. I know what their priorities are. I mean, you both have kids. Um, do they... I mean, your kids are very yeah. little. My two-year-old so can't actually count to 10 reliably. Ros, yet, so. do your kids have an understanding of how working life leading into retirement works? You're joking, and, right? And, and you, Hannah, do you have any realistic expectation that your children might actually live through a model that sees them um, work for X amount of time and then retire? No, but to be clear, Alex, I don't think I'm going to be able to retire. 
This isn't about my children. I know. I, I have a small pension, but I it, it will uh, current. Um, if I can't save another penny after today, which hopefully I will, it's literally giving me about a thousand pounds a year on top of the state mm. pension, and I'm forty one already. I I fully. I mean, did you want to retire? Because I can't really see myself retiring at. I all. know what you mean, and we're very lucky that we're in an industry where you know I can hope. No, it's not physical, yeah, yeah. and presuming my mind is well enough, I hope I'd be able to continue to work as, as much or as little as I wanted into you know seventy. I have so bad news, love. Here's the thing: <laughs> you're already you're already losing it. <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing, right? You can't rely on your health. I've seen this with my mm. family I've, time and time again. And so mm. I'm very aware that bluntly, and I don't mind being honest about this because I believe that many listeners will be in the same position and I'm not embarrassed. It's just the generation that we're in. And my husband is 10 years older than me, much closer to retirement and also deeply unprepared. It's taken us this long to buy a family home to bring our children up. And we only bought it last year. We were living in a small flat before mm. then. We haven't been able to plan for retirement until we had a house. Now we have a house. Now we're thinking about retirement planning, but it's very late. And we both work in the media, so we could hopefully both work as, as we get older, little bits here and there. But we can't be sure we're well enough. And I do worry about it. Mm. And so it's, this is a very live issue for, for people in their 20s, 30s and even 40s. It's not just about our children. And I don't trust that the government's fine government and I mean I don't mean any particular party that government finances will, will be in a position to give me very much at all when I'm mm. in my 70s no. how about you Rose how about you kids yeah well, my kids, no, I mean, they, yeah, pensions are not for some reason taught in school. So I don't really understand why. It doesn't seem to be part of the citizenship curriculum, which it Well, really why be. give them false hope, I think. <laughs> but I mean, I think, I think their instinct is like a lot, a lot of people to look at what their parents have and hope that that will give them security. And fortunately, uh, I um, own own our home with with my husband and I'm incredibly lucky to do that and I constantly feel lucky to have to have that particularly as my health hasn't been great recently and I don't know how long I will be whether I'll be able to work until 67 as the state demands to me of me but this is what happens when you feel you can't trust the state you know, you hoard and you think, what have my parents got? Will I be yeah. okay? How Same much will I inherit? Yeah. And it's why inheritance tax is disliked even by those people who won't pay it because they feel you know, it's yet another taking stuff away and you're not doing anything for me anyway. You won't give me the basics and then when I want to pass on money to my kids, you're taking some of that away from me. And it's this very, it, I think that is something that the current government simply does not understand. Mm. And it's very hard preparing kids for an age of up, what was like to be an age of upheaval and uncertainty. You know what that you're really preparing them for, especially when their last experience of crisis, COVID, was of isolation and powerlessness. And yeah. you think, what is going to be coming down the road for these for the for my kids? I mm. have no idea. No idea at all. Flexibility, I think. Mer it, it, a mercurial quality is the best thing you can give yeah. your kids. The ability to cope with massive change. Yeah, and that right? is actually very difficult because you're also, as a parent, your role is to give them security. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Your favourite history nerds are back 
Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. We've reached the end of this show, so it's time for escape routes. In what cultural oubliettes have our panel locked themselves this week to escape Liz Truss and Russell Brand? Ros, how about you? Well, I'm sorry about this, and I'm in no way promoting any other podcast, but I have been reading Roy Stewart's book, Politics uh-huh. on the Edge, because, you know, it's, and it's, 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 a, it's a very fun read. And it's really shocking, really shocking. There are some MPs there and people who he does not name, but it would not be too difficult to identify who are the most disgusting specimens of humanity. And then there is one who he does name, David Cameron. And my God, he has no time for David Cameron. David Cameron gets the worst right. <laughs> and it, it, the guy is just absolute. He, he, you know, his, his bullshitting on Afghanistan, his insincerity. It's just, oh, dear. But, you know, it is, it is a very good read for all very those good. reasons. That as sounds very exciting. Bring it in next time. Uh, but don't week. listen to the podcast because yeah. the book's better, yeah. But bring it in next week and I'll borrow it rather than give the bugger. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've, I've got it. I've got it in my Kindle. Sorry. All right, okay. <laughs> Hannah, how about you? Well, news from the shallow end of culture from me because this week I've been enjoying the return of Selling the OC. Absolute dross on Netflix following a bunch of ridiculous... Uh, semi-scripted basically real estate brokers in uh, in the Orange County it's nonsense it's a useful reminder of US extreme wealth and how it basically perverts the whole you know the global economy but that's the only serious thing you can take away from it the rest of it's just outfits and watching people drinking champagne it's it's great if you want something that's complete nonsense and totally bingeable please try Marvellous. Well, I'm continuing my um, review of 2000's procedurals <laughs> series. I did The Mentalist, I did The Closer, and very good they were too. Now I'm doing NCIS, which I had never seen before, and which has gone on for 23 seasons. And I have to say, it is a bin fire. <laughs> like, the, the misogyny, the constant gay panic, like practically every episode has something to do with characters accidentally touching each other or having to be locked in a small space together and panicking because they're men sort of touching each other. It is a a complete, complete and utter um, memento of a time gone gone by, which is extraordinary considering it is only 20 years old. And Friends is like that as well. Mm. Friends practically every episode has like a gay panic joke or two. Um, And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Ros Taylor. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah Fern. Thank you. And thanks to me, because I'm worth it. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer, which you should be. Thanks for listening to Oh God, What Now? See you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Alex Andreu with Hannah Fern and Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. 
and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Adam Wright. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Thank you.